सहनावतु सहनावभुनक्तु सहावीर्यम करवावाहि तेजस्वीनावतीतमास्तु माविद्विशावाहि Welcome to the Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. Today we're going to listen to a pre-recorded session on contentment versus enlightenment, which I recorded in New York City in February of 2017. Tonight is the night of Maha Shiva Ratri. Maha means great. Shiva is that consciousness event that removes whatever has become irrelevant. No matter how relevant something once was, like, you know, the umbilicus, highly relevant for 40 weeks. And then once contractions begin, not relevant. And it has to go. Otherwise, things can happen to baby and to mother. It doesn't mean, oh, that terrible thing, it was no good. It was fabulous for 40 weeks, but now it's lost its relevance and now it's time for it to go like that. Shiva. Shiva is that quality, that event inside of our consciousness. In Veda, we have this from Rig Veda. Richo akshare parame vyoman yasmin deva adivishve nishetu Richa Akshare, it means all of the knowledge in the richas are established inside of the consciousness field. Yasmin Deva Adivishve Nishedu. This is also where all the devas are. The devas are what? These celestial beings, God, gods, goddesses, all of that. They're inside the consciousness field. Yastana Veda Kimrichakarishati, that means someone who only has the verses to go with is just left with nothing but flowery words. It means, but someone who's established in that consciousness field, they have balance. They have all of that, all those impulses of knowledge. Everything's there. And so where is Shiva? Shiva, we see statues of Shiva and icons of Shiva, you know, dancing Shiva. There he is standing and he's dancing on one foot with one leg balanced in a beautiful pose, several arms, which means multiple capability, all coming out from the body, holding lights all around him, and in one hand a little drum, which is conical, Mahatomahiyan, Anuraniyan, Mahatomahiyan, that means from bigger than the biggest, to smaller than the smallest, to bigger than the biggest again. And it's got a little string on it with a little ball. And taka, 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 taka. There's that sound. And he's dancing on something. When you look, he's dancing on a little being who's all downtrodden, who has fangs coming out, with very sleepy eyes. Who's that being on whom Shiva's dancing? Contentedness. Contentedness. Shiva's dancing on the contentedness. Why? 
because the contentedness is, in this case, inordinate. It is not yet appropriate to be content. Not yet appropriate. Sleepiness, like asleep, asleep. That contentedness, which is in its nature ignorant of the need for progressive change. Contentedness. Need for progressive change is there, but contentedness has come too early and the consciousness is asleep. And so Shiva dances on that in order to wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And this is the enlightenment. The enlightenment is the awakening into what? Not more contentedness. I've met enlightened people in my lifetime. I never met one yet who was content. They're busy, busy, busy. Always wanting to do something more, build something more, teach more people. My own master, when he was asked in a, an interview when he was in his 80s, now that you've brought meditation to millions of people all over the world and you have an opportunity to be anywhere you want, what would be your ideal? What would be the ideal for you? Would you like to live in an ashram with all meditating people around you so you could sense your achievement and all of that? He just laughed and he said, I've always wanted the same thing, to be surrounded by simple, ignorant people. Why? That's what a lighthouse wants. Lighthouse doesn't want to be sitting in the middle of Times Square at noon. A lighthouse wants to radiate light into the darkness. That's what a lighthouse does best. And so sitting around with lots of light and lots of other meditators, that's not the aspiration of heightened consciousness. Heightened consciousness wants to seek out need because it itself is not needy. It's not needy. When consciousness is no longer needy, it's not looking for the place where there's contentedness. It's looking for need. Where is the need? Fulfillment seeks need. <clears throat> Neediness seeks fulfillment. But if you are fulfillment, you find yourself seeking out need. Where's the greatest need? The need of the time. Need of the time. Some great master could just sit in the Himalayas and be all happy. There's a river and there's a cave and somebody's bringing some food and all of that. And just sitting there, you know, watching the birds and watching the seasons and everything seems kind of nice in a way. But how can that be nice when you live in a world that is peaceless? If you genuinely have broadened and expanded consciousness, then your peace will be kicked around like a football by the peacelessness and suffering of all of those in the world who are suffering. And so when someone says, you know, I have everything I want, what do you have to offer to me? Then I would say, I offer you the suffering of the world. If it's true you have everything you want, that means you have the technique of fulfillment. You can come with me all around the world and teach whatever that is that got you that way. 
do you really have everything you want? Because if it's true, I'll offer you the suffering of the world to dissolve it with your happiness. Otherwise, I have everything I want. What does that mean? It's based on a lack of information about what's actually happening in the world. What's actually happening? And so, contentedness is considered by one of the great masters of our tradition going back to about 2,700 years ago, just before Buddha, Maharishi Patanjali. Maharishi Patanjali. A Maharishi is a Maha great Rishi Seer, Patanjali. And he's famous for a few things, not least of which is his producing a document called the Yoga Sutras, the aphorisms of unity, on the basis of which all of yoga is known. Asked by one of his students, what's the greatest enemy of enlightenment of an individual or of a community? He gave the immediate answer, Shantosha. Shantosha means contentment. Contentment. And so, not that we want to be suffering and agitated and all of that. What we want is to be eager to find where fulfillment is. It's not in the relative world, it's inside of you. It is your baseline, it is your inner nature, it's what you actually are. To harness that state, stabilize it, and then go on a hunt. And the hunt, once you've got the fulfillment, is the hunt for where it's needed. We need to go from fulfillment to bringing that light of knowledge and that light of the radiant face of a meditator to into action. Bring it to everyone. Radiate life for all to enjoy. And so contentedness is not a goal. It's not a goal. What is a goal is fulfillment. Fulfillment's different to contentedness. Fulfillment is always on the move. Contentedness is not. Contentedness is not on the move. Fulfillment likes to go on excursions. Contentedness likes to stay put. So enlightenment has little to do with contentedness. It has a lot to do with fulfillment, seeking need. And there's nothing more joyful, as you know, than the mind, which is fully developed, being able to meet successfully and interact with demands. As meditators, you all know this. You see people around you making themselves suffer over things, over events, that if the same thing happened to you, you wouldn't be suffering from that. Or you see them astonished and surprised when change comes, which change you were able to see six months ago. And when it finally dawns on them that this change has happened and you see them crying or carrying on or whatever, something that you already had known about for months and you can see the degree to which they have arranged and designed their own suffering. They've designed it themselves. And you might find that you're just there watching that, thinking, why are people doing that to themselves? And this is 
our regular experience as meditators. And that's because when our mind goes into that least excited state, finer states of the mantra, finer and finer and finer and finer, very, very faint pulsations of the mantra. In our practice, the mantra spontaneously gets subtler and softer. All we have to do to trigger that is silent, inner, effortless repetition of it. And that repetition of it is not in any way trying to control it. We're not meditating with any kind of goal orientation. The process itself is the outcome. The process is the outcome. Innocent, effortless repetitions of the mantra, and then any time you begin to notice that you're beginning to forget to repeat it, then do not try to keep on remembering it. Don't try to persist in repeating it. Let it go. The mind ends up going and thoughts, and for a little while you don't know you're meditating. And as I said last week, that's when you're really meditating, when you've forgotten that you're meditating. That's when you're really meditating. And then after a little while rambling around and a few thoughts drifting and drifting in these thoughts, something happens, a new thought comes. Oh, that's right. I'm meditating. Mantra's not here. And yet we train ourselves not to get jumpy about that. Oh, mantra's not here. Fine. It was supposed to disappear. I'm doing it right. Now let me just nonchalantly, easily, effortlessly return. Once again, faint idea. Once again, mantra gets softer, 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 fainter, fainter, and then starts disappearing. And then sometimes... Mantra goes away completely, and there's a moment. No mantra, no thought. Pure consciousness, being. Ridiculously simple. People have spent lifetimes crying and weeping and struggling and monasticism and asceticism and giving up all their possessions and living in all kinds of strange places. To have that experience one time, which you could have sitting in the subway in New York, as a practitioner of Vedic meditation, you could be in a subway doing your technique and have that whole state of being experienced, organized before you get off at your stop. And for us, this is just such a simple, natural, innocent phenomenon. And yet, we know people have described lifetimes of struggling and fighting and praying and weeping to God and whipping themselves and concentrating and controlling and all of that rigmarole, we feel kind of sorry for them because our practice is just so simple. You close your eyes and a few little repetitions of the mantra, ding, 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 ding. Ding is nobody's mantra. Don't use it. It's my lecturing prototype. Don't run away from here saying, oh, I got the new mantra, ding. <laughs> I was at the special meeting on the Mahashivratri night. <laughs> you didn't get the advanced technique, ding. <laughs> so there you are, just ding, 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 ding. And then, next thing you know, oh, mantra's gone. Oh, I have to come back, but what was that just now? No mantra, no thought was there. I must have transcended, must have. Okay, great, time for dinner. For us, this is just such an easy, everyday thing, which people have written books and spent lifetimes struggling to get this one little experience. 
we just do that twice every day, morning and evening, sometimes several times in one sitting. It happens. No big thing. And it means that our speed of evolution is enormous. When mantra gets very, very faint, it's so charming. And not only is mantra charming, but that faint mantra drops us off in that very, very charming place deep inside where even the other thoughts are extremely charming. And what happens is those layers of the mind are like nectar. And our five senses, which are all internalized when we're meditating, find something there that's absolutely so fascinating, so fulfilling. After the meditation, you might look back and say, I don't know what that was, but whatever it was, it was fantastic. But I can't really say quite what it was. But the senses have had an experience and the senses will hone themselves and sharpen themselves to be able to get into that nectar. And those senses which have become hyper acute as a result of those finer states of thought during meditation, that same sensory perception comes out of meditation with you into everyday activity. And what happens then is that all of the subtle aspects of change are detectable by you. You can detect change. The future, the whole future, everything that is going to be happening is here right now in this room in seed form. Everything that can happen is here in seed form. The real question is, can you detect, do you have subtle enough perception to detect the subtle information about the direction that change is taking right now? And can you see which of these seeds of change is germinating and which of these seeds of change are continuing to lie dormant? And so the future is not something you look down a telescope to see. The whole future is right here in the present. It's fully revealed, except if our senses are dull, we don't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, or hear it. We're blind to it. And so what we need is super acute sensory perception. And this comes by virtue of just the innocent process that we do every time we meditate, the razor sharpening of the senses. When you come out from your meditation, you don't really appreciate fully just how acute your sensory perception has become. But it must be there because you notice other people around you missing things. They miss things that you experience. They miss things that you see very easily and very clearly. And not just the things that you see and hear and taste and touch and smell, but the connection between them. Something over here, something over here, previously unconnected, now you see the connectedness between those things. And those connections that you are able to detect give you information about the future in the making. Future is in the making, in the present. People have said to me sometimes, Tom, are you psychic? And I'll say, well, it depends on what you think that means. And they'll say, well, like, you know, can you see the future? And I just say to them, look, thing is, I'm really good with the present. Really good with the present. Like, really good. <laughs> and that present moment awareness that everybody talks about, everyone's talking present moment awareness, present moment awareness, 
we don't have present moment awareness if stress is clouding our sensory perception and forcing us to behave in ways that are irrelevant. It may have been relevant once when you got some shocking news to have stress reactivity in your body. Nothing wrong with getting stressed. What's wrong is staying stressed. Staying stressed. Somebody looked like they were a promising relationship prospect to you and then suddenly it turned out that you didn't possess the clarity of perception to see that that wasn't true. And you'd built all kinds of inaccurate expectations. You built them. They weren't given to you, you built them. And then suddenly truth came and you didn't want truth. You wanted your hallucination. (laughs) But then the hallucination has no tactile value to it. And then you got all hurty poos. <laughs> and then three weeks later, still hurty poos. Five years later, still hurty poos. Ten years later, still hurty poos. And all of these years of life lost in what? Someone will sometimes say to me, But Tom, I was broken hearted for five years. So no, actually, you were broken hearted for about 30 seconds, and then you stayed broken hearted for five years. You stayed brokenhearted, or you stayed frightened if it was a frightening thing, or you stayed angry if you had signed up for that experience. (laughs) Being like that, it's okay, you can get really angry right now, but you want to get over it in about 30 seconds. Even less, three seconds would be even better. And so then, the ability to quickly become adaptive and go back to the natural state. My teacher had a great analogy. You take something strong like a chisel and let's make it, just to make it a little more dramatic, let's make it a rusty steel chisel. And you take the rusty steel chisel and you put it on a granite wall and hammer into it a line in the granite wall. It's a deep line. 10,000 years from now, some archaeologist comes along with their little brush and dusts that off and everything and says, look, you know, before the nuclear wars and all that, there was uh, somebody carved a line in this wall. Wonder what it means. (laughs) 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 We take the steel chisel and we go to a beach and stick it into the sand and drag it. Now we also have a line in the sand, but no archaeologist is going to see it because within a few hours, it just sand blows around in the wind and some water comes and that line is gone. Then we take the same rusty steel chisel and go out in our boat and we stick it into the water and drag it. And there's a line for a moment and then it's gone. And stick it in again and drag it and there's a line for a moment and then it's gone. It's the same big rusty chisel that you're using that can either make a line on that medium that lasts for archaeology or another line which can last for one afternoon or another line which is there and deep and then gone. No impression. The consciousness state 
and enlightenment is the water. Deep impression. It's very easy sticking a chisel down deep into the water and very easy to drag it, very easy to make a line. Somebody who's enlightened is actually far more sensitive. They're actually far more receptive. They feel much more deeply. It doesn't take a large provocation to get them to have the deepest possible feeling. But if there's any damage done, it's just all gone within a short time. Memory is still there. You can remember the line in the water. You just can't see it. It's gone now. No scarring. The granite, that's the regular waking state nervous system of the average for population. Your favorite TV show got canceled or something, and <laughs> there's just a line on in granite for 10 years. I still can't believe it, you know, it's the subject of your Instagrams. And <laughs> why? The ability, the availability to have a thing make as deep an impression like that is not based on the thing. It's not the rusty steel chisel. It's what is it carving into? What's the consciousness state that it's carving into? As you continue practicing your meditation, it takes less pounding and hammering to get through to you, just as it takes less pounding and hammering to get the steel chisel into the water. No hammering at all. But because the medium is different, the knower has become different. There's nothing hanging on. You have some emotional experience, whatever it is. It's not that when you're a meditator, you don't have emotional experiences. You can love more deeply and more quickly than the average person. You can feel deep compassion. You can feel the greatest anger. You can feel the deepest sadness. You can go into highly manic states for a few seconds or minutes at a time. <laughs> it's deeper, it's richer, it's more rewarding. However, since it's not going to be relevant to be like that in a week or a month, you're not continuing to be like that in a week and in a month. You are now ready to be relevant to what the actual need of the time is now. What's the need of the time now? We cannot just make a decision. I'm not going to hang on to experiences anymore. What a cool analogy. I'm the water now. This is as much a physiological reality as it is a psychological phenomenon. Meditation liberates the hardware, the body, to be able to run the software, which is the new wonderful way of thinking. New wonderful way of thinking, fantastic. But if you have a stressed body and that's all you've got to work with, the hardware of the body can't run that software. The body's got stresses in it. And the stresses reinforce all of those irrelevant behaviors. They all get reinforced. Our practice of meditation peels all that away. It makes you perceptive. It makes you sensitive so long as we agree that sensitive means perceptive and not weak. It makes you perceptive. Sensitive in terms of having great sensory acuity. And 
it gives you the capacity of resiliency. You're resilient. You can have deep experiences and right away go back to being totally relevant to the need of the time. No lag time. No wasted lifetime. Any time there's any difficulty socially, that difficulty is caused by people being willing to erect walls and get behind the wall and have an enclave of contented people all sipping cafe latte. You know, at their favorite artisan coffee shop. And that contentedness from behind the wall of people who are contented with each other is the enemy of enlightenment. And so we have to begin a process of taking an interest in bridge building. And you know, when you build a bridge, it doesn't mean you become the other place. If you're building a bridge from one continent to another, it doesn't mean that you're moving the whole continent over there and merging with that continent. It's a bridge. It's not a merger. It's a bridge. It's an opportunity for there to be exchange, exchange, exchange. When exchange happens, Italians get pasta from China. You know, Italians didn't invent pasta. It all came from China. And Italians get things like pumpkin and zucchini from the Native Americans. They didn't ever have zucchinis or anything over there in Italy, believe it or not. They didn't. They didn't have corn either. They didn't know how to make polenta until Native Americans showed them what corn was. It didn't exist anywhere in Europe. They also didn't have any fava beans. There were no beans. What was there in Italy before the bridges were built? Art. Art. I didn't think the art came until they started getting polenta. (laughs) By the time of the Renaissance, the polenta was really going. They got art once they, once they started eating Native American food. <laughs> if we're interested in a renaissance, if we're interested in growth of enlightenment, if we're interested in all of this, we've got to build bridges. If somebody's throwing mud on you, your response to that as a meditator is sprinkle sweets all over them. If you make And now I'm going to get political. If you make being what you think of yourself as a liberal progressive, if that's what you think of yourself, and if you make that look as though it's a miserable state, the mind moves in the direction of greater happiness. See? Who's happy right now? Not the liberal progressives. And so when the world is looking at you know, the 120 million people who didn't vote in this country, there's the really unhappy people, don't think I'll be one of those, and there's the really happy people, maybe I'll be one of those. Mind wants to go where there's happiness. It is incumbent on you, New Yorkers, to start getting happy. Don't hand your happiness away. I'm not saying be happy with somebody, I'm seeing, saying, find happiness where it is. It's inside you. It never was outside of you. It's inside you. You need to find it inside, and then you need to radiate it into the world. 
if you're interested in your point of view being attractive, get attractive. <laughs> it's not attractive being all, you know, I hate people who hate. And all that. <laughs> I hate people who hate. <laughs> you just might as well hold up a sign and be honest. I hate myself. <laughs> I hate myself more than you hate me. Come on. We need to awaken our capability. And our capability is to be radiant and to be creative and to build bridges. That's our capability. Start showing to the world what it is that's attractive about being you. That's a very important thing I'm telling you. We know one thing. There's a cosmic law. No matter what you think is happening, only evolution actually is happening. Now let's just use a microcosm and prove this. When you were a kid and you fell in love with somebody, and let's just make up a story and make it intentionally kind of dramatic. It was your first love. And then it turned out that it wasn't actually all that well thought out or sustainable. And it looked like it was going to go apart. And you're there going, no, please, God, or gods, or whatever, earth, or whatever it is, don't let it happen, you know. I don't want to break up, don't want to break up. No, 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 please, no. And then, you know, six months, one year goes by, and then suddenly something new happens to you. And then you look back at that and you go, oh, thank you so much for not listening to me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, you know, I hope you can just forget about and I'm canceling out all those other prayers. Please don't make it happen again. I don't want it to happen again. I want this. I want this. <laughs> so, what's that mean? Even if you didn't think evolution was happening, it was actually happening. But because we're not adaptive, and because we don't understand that evolution, that means progressive change, is the only thing actually happening, when there is some kind of, you know, the carpet's being pulled out from under everything, it seems as though all is lost. And actually, there's nothing but evolution going on. If you can see it, it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity, and if you can't see that, you need to wake up and start seeing it. Your job is to identify the gift. Can you find the gift? Because it's definitely here. There are people who kind of sit in the mountains being contented and just revel in that. And you know that's a kind of a stereotype image, but we'll go with it for the moment. And then there are people who seem to be out there moving around and radiating it to everybody. And what's the difference between the two? And is one of them better than the other? The fact is, they're all actually the same guy or woman, whatever they are. Those are the people, whether they're sitting in the mountains or whether they're moving around, those are the people who have arrived in at least cosmic consciousness. Cosmic consciousness is the first stage of enlightenment. And cosmic consciousness is the following experience. I am the universe. And I the speaker who's saying I is not a little body that was born somewhere in, you know, Schenectady or something. It's the cosmos thinking of itself as I. I'm the universe and I have this body. And I am the universe and I have that body up in the mountains. And I am the universe and I have this other body that's over in Holland. 
and I am the universe and I have that body and these are the bodies that are stress-free and through which I can operate with complete liberty. And then I have these billions of other bodies that are all muddy, that can't see clearly, and that are a little bit uncoordinated. And if I say, send reinforcements, we're going to advance, they repeat, send three and four pence, I'm going to advance. <laughs> so they get the messages wrong. I send them messages and they don't get it right. They haven't meditated yet. That cosmic consciousness has many, many bodies and billions of bodies. And so everyone is a body of the cosmic consciousness. The cosmic consciousness can operate with absolute liberty through any of its bodies that happen to be stress-free. And if there's a body that's 80% stress-free, it has 80% liberty and 20% is restricted. And so it's not so much that the individual gains cosmic consciousness, like, you know, little Mortimer from Schenectady, you know, went to the Himalayas and got cosmic. <laughs> Mortimer, the cosmic boy from Schenectady. <laughs> um, it's not that. What's actually happening is, instead of an individual gaining cosmic consciousness, the cosmic consciousness is gaining an individual. Cosmic consciousness gains an individual, and it has clarity. So suppose you had one hand that had become very fine motor performance oriented and could play the piano beautifully, but you had this other hand that hadn't learned anything yet. And you have these two hands on the piano, and one of them's just doing the bass lines fantastically on the left, and the other one's just kind of, you know, barely able to do a little bit of chopsticks here and there, and then hits a bad note once in a while. And this hand is just going like, wow, fantastic. And this hand is still a little bit learning, learning, the learning hand. One hand is ahead of the other. But it's one consciousness driving these two hands. One of them a very skilled hand and one of them kind of, you know, still in the learning process. But at least it's moving. <laughs> so cosmic consciousness is not something an individual gets. Like, you know, you get the gold medal from the Olympics, medal, cosmic consciousness. <laughs> it is actually the cosmos has gained an individual in that individual's completeness. The individual no longer is resisting being cosmic. Lack of enlightenment is resistance to being cosmic. Now, some of these bodies have jobs that don't involve moving around. The cosmic intelligence doesn't move them around. Other of the bodies that belong to cosmic intelligence are doing their job by staying put for the moment, sitting in a cave somewhere. But it's not that they're not doing anything because the doer is not the individual anyway. It's the cosmic intelligence that's the doer. And so it may be if I get both hands very articulate and I can play piano extremely well, I still might be playing, you know, a Bach cantata that involves a lot of bass line over here on the left, and my right hand's just waiting, waiting, waiting. It's in the cave. And then this is going to go quiet, and this one's going to start catching up and doing its thing. And it looks like it was reclusive, but it was only reclusive for five minutes. That five minutes on a larger scale might be 50 years. Swami Brahman Saraswati, Gurudev, Maharishi's master, my master's master, 
lived in a forest in absolute solitude for 50 years. One stint of 10 years, then he visited his master for a year, and then went back to the forest for 40 years. And then he came out of the forest and agreed, after 50 years of silence in a forest, agreed to become the Shankaracharya. Shankaracharya is the title given to the king of the yogis, the undisputed preeminent master of all the masters. And when you become Shankaracharya, what happens? You're an instant celebrity and you're surrounded by cameras and people taking pictures and crowds just crushing in on you. India has a lot of people. You know, <laughs> a million people at a meeting is not uncommon there. You get a million people in one place all crushing in to see the Shankaracharya. And so from being in absolute silence for 50 years, at the age of 71, if you can even imagine this, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly becoming the most sought after and most famous person in his country. And people were jamming up against trying to get near him. And then he spent 13 years in that mode. And then he just dropped the body after he'd finished training enough people. When he was ready to get them to go out and teach, there was a particular day where he just dropped his body. And smilingly. What is it that's doing that? Why did Guru Dev do that? Well, Guru Dev was not actually Guru Dev. Guru Dev was cosmic intelligence, and it was sculpting that body in the jungles. And meanwhile, it was working on some other thing here with one of its other bodies. And then when it was time for this body to go out and be Shankaracharya, it was like, go. And so who was that guy? It was cosmic intelligence. All these different people who are enlightened are actually all the same person. This is the message that comes from these great enlightened people. The rabbi from Nazareth, you know who I mean, the one we numbered the years after? (laughs) The rabbi from Nazareth said four times in the New Testament, I and the Father are one. What does that mean? It means that individuality is cosmic. Individuality is cosmic. That's the realization. But everyone misses it. They miss it. It's not a glorification of individuality. It is a statement that the cosmos has acquired a nervous system and is operating through it. That's what that means. The proper name for our practice in India is Nishkam Karma Yoga. Nishkam Karma Yoga. Nishkam means that which has no activity in it. Karma means that which is action. Yoga means the gaining of a state of realization of the oneness of individuality and universality together at the same time. Yoga. Yoga is not all the movements and the asanas and the pranayama and all of that. We've started calling that yoga in the West. That's actually a form of hatha yoga. It's a form of Hatha Yoga, and there are about 15 or 20 different forms of it that are popular in the West. In India, there's about a thousand forms of it. Yoga doesn't mean moving your body in certain (coughs) positions. Yoga is a consciousness state. (coughs) It's the consciousness state of realization of the oneness of individuality and universality. (coughs) That consciousness state, yoga. 
the adjective that comes before it is the thing that describes how the yoga is achieved. Nishkam karma. Nishkam means minimize activity, that's meditation, and then go into action, that's karma. Minimized activity followed by action, followed by minimized activity followed by action. Now, in a new meditator, we teach you a technique which minimizes activity about as much as you can tolerate. New meditators who've just learned for the very first time, they think they're being effortless in the first three, four, five days, but actually a year later, if they look back at these first weeks, they're going to look back at it and say, I thought I was being effortless and actually now I know I was still straining. And so a year later, you can learn something which is going to employ in the mind the capacity to meditate with even less application, less doing than before, and less doing than before, and less doing than before, until we have the capacity as meditators in meditation to do least doing, and then we have the capacity when we have cosmic consciousness for nothing doing, nothing doing, no doing, no doing whatsoever. When meditation can no longer be done, it's because the consciousness you have inside and the consciousness that you have outside are the same thing. The inside experience no longer is the sole place in which you can experience unboundedness of consciousness. The unboundedness now is being experienced by you outside of the context of your eyes closed state. Fulfillment is fulfillment. It can't search for itself. Fulfillment doesn't search for happiness. It searches for wherever there's any need. So if I'm completely fulfilled, I will still think and I'll still act and I'll still achieve, motivated by bringing my fulfillment into contact with need. I want to bring my fulfillment into contact with need. Now let's look at the opposite way around, which is almost everyone in the world, almost. I am a big bag of neediness. I'm all needy inside here. I need love, and I need romance, and I need babies, and I need money, and I need this, and I need that, need, 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 need. And where's the fulfillment? It's not here. It's not here, it's out there. Other people have it. Where's my love? Where's my hug? Where's my kiss? Where's my, where's my baby? Where's my, where's my money? You've got it. You have it. I'm need. You are fulfillment. Give it to me. I want it. I'm needy. That's the rest of the world. And when you are the fulfillment, I'm fulfillment. I don't have need, but I am needed, and so I want to bring my fulfillment on an excursion, and I'm seeking need. What is the need of the time? What's the need of the time? On that, I will apply my creative intelligence, my thinking, my action, my achievements, are all going into meeting the need of the time. I'm not seeking anything. One's not seeking anymore. You're no longer a seeker of fulfillment or happiness. You're like the tongue which is coated with honey. 
It can't be tempted by a Snickers bar anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're swimming in a swimming pool of honey and just letting it go in your mouth and you're swimming in that. And then somebody comes and says, would you like a Snickers? <laughs> no, not really. You see, you don't really understand. <laughs> Let me explain it to you. <laughs> I'm in this honey swimming and I'm just gulping it down every minute. <laughs> really, Snickers bar, not necessary. Thank you very much. Nobody who's in cosmic consciousness is seeking anything that the world can bring. But the world does have need in it. And you know that your fulfillment is not just to be sitting around, you know, experiencing fulfillment. It wants to move in the direction of the need of the time, and it does, and you get busy. So fulfillment is a very busy state. It's a very busy state. Contentedness is not a busy state. Let your consciousness be big. You don't really think that anybody's free, do you? All those people who can, you know, go around and do anything they want, they can eat cheeseburgers and drink whiskeys and smoke cigarettes and they still look healthy. Do you really think those people are free? Not free. You're free if you have knowledge. You're free if you have techniques. You're free if you have capability. And you're free to the extent that you are allowing yourself to grow into that fulfillment status. You're free to that extent. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you. <laughs>